Welcome to The Velocity Factor, a podcast about leadership, change, and growth. I'm Ben Strout, President and Chief Growth Architect at Velocity Strategy Solutions, an on-demand, next-generation management consulting firm dedicated to helping leaders and organizations design, develop, and deploy smarter growth strategies. Each week, my co-host and I explore the questions, challenges, and obstacles Every leader faces when you push beyond business as usual and reach for breakthrough results. It's raw, unfiltered, and exactly what you need to find the confidence, clarity, and conviction to step into your preferred future. Subscribe to email updates at thevelocityfactor.com. Now let's do this together. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Velocity Factor podcast. Today, we're going to talk about culture and why it is a byproduct of your people strategy. You know, there's some some important things that I think we need to to wrap our our heads around in this and that your biggest risk right now in this season of COVID is not a lack of revenue. It is a lack of engagement and an increased amount of drift on your team. Uh, And that, I think, is something that most leaders are completely underestimating. And I can't wait to unpack this with you uh, today, Daniel. I just think it's going to be so important. The reality is, is that the the environment right now in most businesses, uh, because of the uncertainty, because of the change, because of the lack of communication, because of the desire to just kind of hold down the fort, and, and everyone is kind of operating off different measures right now, uh, there are a lot of employees uh, that are not sold on the current their current reality. They're not feeling very secure and safe in their current position because they're seeing their friends go. They're seeing departments go away. They're seeing the anxiety in the system that's beginning to surface. And they are, I am just absolutely convinced of this, Daniel, the perception of risk from staying and leaving your organization is almost equal right now. And when that happens, when it opens up, I think we're going to see a massive transfer of talent from one organization to others. And I'm already seeing really smart organizations start to go after in a targeted way the best talent that is out there. And I think that's just going to just kind of break the dam, if you will, and cause a massive amount of of transfer. Uh, and, uh, And I think this is something that leaders are completely undervaluing and underestimating. It's they, they see it as a soft skill. They see it as something that isn't that measurable or quantifiable. I just got to hold the line. I got to hold expenses down. I got to, you know, hold revenue or at least stop the bleeding, or I got to try to, to, to grow it as much as I can. And they've never stopped to really realize that, wait a minute, if I don't have a team tomorrow, I can't get any of this done. Am I off here? No, no. I think, uh, you know, culture is the, the foundation that will support or destroy your performance as a company. And it's, it's simply defined as the, the way we roll, man. And I think culture is tied to your brand and brand is simply, you know, what people say about you and what people say about the company. And uh, co- culture for us is the confluence of the who of your story so do you know the story of your company? And, and in these times of COVID, um, you know, story is the, the shaped uh, self or the shaped 
factors that have shaped you as a company. It's your envisioned future, but it's how you're living today. And so story work is really important. What are the chapters? What are the milestones? How have we overcome obstacles in the past? How have we faced challenges? But it's also about your future. It's about your why, your values. It's about your how, which is your behaviors and how how you do things and tying your behaviors to your why uh, before you get to the what. You know, what, what job is to be done? What problems are you solving? Um, unpacking that who, why, how, and what is, is critical and weaving it through the company. I mean, this is the essence of external branding, but we all know the companies that have this beautiful, shiny external brand and you pull, pull back the curtains and it's a toxic work culture. And we're moving into an age of transparency and that requires greater integrity, thankfully, in regard to our work to where the outside of our company matches the inside of our company. And it's an essential um, reality for attracting and keeping great talent. So I've got to it, absolutely acknowledge and own my, my bias in all of this. And that, that is in college, I was given a book by the, the great management guru, Tom Peters, a little uh-huh. book that he wrote called The Brand You. Yeah. And in that book, he actually argued uh, that all work is temporary. So this is, this is you know, 2000, uh, the year 2000. Uh, all work is temporary and that you as an individual should think of yourself as a corporation. A corporation has uh, assets that are invested in, in, uni- in specific ways in order to create more value. And your assets are time and skills. And a company, the company you work for gives you projects and opportunities. And those two things, as long as they are mutually beneficial, work really well. So I have always brought that to the table, uh, that mentality to the table when I've worked for others uh, in the past. And this has always been an, you know, an, an interesting tension point. Or maybe it's, maybe it's me I've created the tension. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but that mentality is, is said, I want to work for people that, who are smarter than me, who have experienced more than I have and who have something that I can learn from, right? I never made a decision on a job because of compensation, because of benefits or because of retirement, right? All the things that they tell you are great things in new employee orientation. You know, stay here, keep your head down, don't do anything, you know, criminal and ethical or stupid, my words, not theirs. Uh, You know, 30 years later, you get the gold watch, the pension and go on about your day. All that stuff was gone by the time I hit the workforce because 9-11, you know, I saw growing up in Houston, I saw Arthur Anderson and Enron completely collapse. I mean, these were immovable objects, mm-hmm. right? So Tom Peters is looking really smart to me at 22. And uh, and I still think, you know, at 40, he's he's unbelievably brilliant and was way ahead of his time on, on what this is. And so, you know, I think all of the vestiges that kept people at companies in the past um, things like, uh, you know, implicit loyalty to an organization or entity that's gone. Uh, I think the benefits that used to keep a lot of people at companies uh, right now are at risk. Most most uh, retirement plans aren't being funded. Uh, health insurance increases are continuing to be passed along. People aren't seeing their incomes rise, which means that the greater expense Expenses that are hitting them are meaning, meaning less take-home pay. Uh, the sense of security is not there. Uh, there, you know, in almost every benefit outside of health insurance can be replicated in its current form and value uh, outside an organization. So all those things 
that that used to be something that would keep people from kind of bumping against the wall too hard or finding something else are gone. And and this is this is really important shift because the because I really think there's going to be a lot of leaders wake up one day and half their team's going to quit and they're going to go, "Wait, what just happened? Where are you going?" And and they're going to be completely blindsided of this because I think what happened in March is if there was any vestige of that sense of corporate security, which is a complete misnomer, is gone. Everybody understands that their position will is at risk or will eventually be at risk. Uh, whether that is being replaced by technology, or whether that's being you know outsourced, or whether that you know you're just you're, we're going to have to downsize the way we do that, or we're going to stop doing this to start doing that. And, you know, you're kind of caught in the middle in between all of that. And I think it's it's a complete awareness around that, which means that it's no longer, quote unquote, risky to step out. I mean, I remember, Daniel, and you probably got this, too, the first time you stepped out and, and started your business. I, I remember it was the end of 2009 and I was in this safe, secure environment, $600 million a year organization. Uh, and I was told I was making the biggest mistake of my life. Um, that I'd be crawling back. Uh, why would I leave a safe, secure corporate job to go do something unusual right after you know a major financial episode like in 2008? And uh, and, and for me, they just didn't understand that I didn't I didn't share those same values. So I you know I think for me the it was greater risk to stay somewhere and have one person paying you than have a bunch of people paying you. Uh, it was greater risk uh, that the longer you stayed in an organization, the less aware you were what was happening. So. I say all of that to say, um, I think one of the things that leaders are undervaluing is that you have to sell your company and and your present leadership to your team. <laughs> it's not, it, and, and, and it's not, your first sale is not to your customer, client, constituent, donor, whatever. Your first sale is to your team. Uh, you know, I, would you agree or disagree? Oh, man. It's a... Uh... You're reading my mail. Yesterday, I was uh, working with a team, you know, and they manage over $100 million in projects. And we were we were building out some of their their project management. And this happens all the time. We'll kind of build out a frame. We, we're both frame builders to increase focus and growth. And uh, we had finished an initial draft. And it was like, okay, let's go. And I'm like, hold, hold, hard stop, hard stop. Uh, we're not just rolling this out. We need to now step back and go, how do we, how do we brand it? How do we sell it? And that is a foreign concept to people. You know, no, let's just tell them what to do. They're, they're paid to work. We built out the frame. Now let's kind of put these cogs in our machine and helping companies pause and ask, okay, great. We, we built out a widget or a framework. How does this connect to who we are, why we are, how we're positioned internally and how might we storm this framework in such a way that's similar to deal storming and sales? Because everything is sales. And the companies that get that, you're always selling, you're always pitching internally and externally, are the ones that are winning. Uh, the ones that think you can just build and people will get it are the ones that are constantly finding themselves frustrated. That is that's so good. And and your your inaction or inability to see that, I think, will cost you every penny of profit that you're really trying to preserve by, uh, you know, putting the screws to your team. 
it's it's just uh, you you know when when you realize that there is a democratization of power that's happening right now inside corporate environments, and that is being defined by the permission systems of each team. Uh, you are in when you realize that you recognize that you you as a leader have to go to work to make sure that you are completely aligned uh, with your team and that your team is aligned with you. And that second, that you are you have a actual plan, not a want to, not a desire to, not a hope to, but you have a written plan to take advantage of each person's individual unique contributions to that team, and that you have you feel the responsibility and they see you take that responsibility that you've got to position them for success. So I mean this this is uh, you know this is classic um, you know mismatch type type stuff. So if you've got a bunch of process people and you are an innovative leader and you're asking them, you ask that team to create something new, you are literally going to rip that team apart Yeah, because the team dynamics are not there. The process people are going to want to go so slow. It's going to frustrate the innovative leader. And here's what's going to happen. Chairs are going to be thrown. People are going to cuss at each other. They're going to pound the <laughs> table. It's just not going to work. Right. Uh, and you know, in the same way on sales teams, you know, all of a sudden, you know, sales manager comes in and says, you know, we've got to grow our revenue from existing clients. And so you put your hunters on your farm, your farmer teams. Right. And what I mean by farming is that you're cultivating, you're growing, you're tending. Yeah. You know, these these are people who really excel at customer retention. Uh, you know, don't ask. Don't ask the people who are going to go out and hunt and bring in new uh, to somehow f- to become farmers because it's not part of their nature. Vice versa, if you've got a great team of farmers, don't tell them to go hunt. Yeah. All you're going to do is is frustrate yourself and them. They're going to feel like they're not making their biggest contribution. And guess what? That's going to raise their uh, consciousness around maybe this isn't the place for me anymore. And uh, and and this is where this is where I think there are three dimensions of this that are really important. You need to understand yourself, right? the leader's ability to get buy-in from the team begins with self-awareness and holy cow in the age of empathy uh, in this age of transparency uh, where the currency is trust. If you don't have self-awareness, you are done like done. Uh, And, uh, and so it starts with that. Then it starts with you plus the work to be done and understanding and appreciating uh, what it is and, and who it's going to take in order to get that done. And then it's you plus work plus others that I think are, are really important in, the, in that formula. Once you understand your role, once you understand the work that needs to be done and you understand how the other people on your team and the dynamics that creates really positions you to be able to achieve that, then I think it gives you a superpower. And that is you get to unlock the latent potential of your team to perform at levels that they've never thought they could do that. Uh, and I, I, Daniel, I know you've seen this uh, time and time again. And, uh, you know, the, but the hardest part is that self-awareness. So so if, it, you know. Well, let me I, I, think, I think important to self-awareness is self-awareness is, is an ongoing process. So it's awareness of self, others, team, company, market. And we can't afford to have a blind spot in any one of those areas. If we have a blind spot in self, it can sabotage our work. If we have a blind spot in relationship to our team or company or the market, 
Um, it's a massive barrier to growth. And so it's an ongoing process of becoming more self-aware and more team aware and more company aware and more aware of the market. I mean, we are stepping into a market that is marked by uncertainty, complexity and volatility and that is unprecedented. And that going back to that brand and culture, it's recognizing, am I in a position to make this gamble, to make this bet, whether it's on innovation or a new process or a, a new strategy? It's understanding your position with your team and company and not assuming that. And so often we find ourselves frustrated by work being sabotaged. And that is oftentimes the fruit of a disengaged workforce. And we are dealing with unprecedented numbers, increasing numbers of a disengaged workforce. And it's not just technical solutions. It's that adaptive work. It's that engaging the whole person. And that is the vital work that needs to be done all the time. But in this particular season, it's elevated. And we've completely set up the leader to fail in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, we take great individual contributors, we throw them across the great divide. Uh, we tell them now you have a team and instead of them looking at it and saying, how can I serve you? They, they look at it just the opposite. How can you help me be even more successful? And I think that is, that is a, that is something that companies have to get better, um, at picking and choosing leaders and they have to get better at training those leaders. But I'm very curious on your uh, on the it, uh, you know the reality of disengagement, which leads to drift. So if I'm a team leader, or if I'm a manager, or if I'm an executive, what does drift look like? What do you tell your clients that they need to look for so that they can see it? Because man, it's subtle, particularly in the beginning. Uh, what what do you say? I think drift is is marked by. Uh, a lack of trust. I mean, it takes, it's, it's difficult work building trust, but it doesn't take much to break trust. Um, drift is found in the inability to have productive conflict to, to go at it, um, regarding the challenges divorce from ego. Um, and so, you know, one of the, the first signs of drift is when, uh, I, I hear from a company, Oh no, we're good. We don't have conflict. Um, you know, Patrick Lencioni says that the absence of conflict is a sign of dysfunction. And so is there conflict and are they aware of the conflict and are they able to handle that conflict in a productive manner? Um, a lack of accountability is a big sign of drift, um, not holding self and others accountable um, to the objectives and a lack of clear objectives. You know, I mean, one of the, the basic questions we used to diagnose is like, hey, do you guys have a plan? Or what, what is your planning process look? I don't know, I don't care what you call it, but do you have something yeah. that orbits around uh, challenges, obstacles, and opportunities, and specific objectives and outcomes? You know, I, I, it's called a bazillion things. Uh, it's, it's BS bingo sometimes naming those things, but do you have a sense of where you are and where you wanna go the next 30, 60, 90 days? Um, and typically an absence of a clear commitment to goals, um, an absence of conflict, um, not having those conversations because of a lack of trust and transparency is, is where we see the drift emerging. So I'm particularly interested in, in, in the conflict. And I think we always cast conflict in a negative light. 
But one of the things that I see in executive teams is the longer you're in that executive role and the longer that executive team is together, the, the, le- the less the opportunity for dissension exists. I mean, it really is yeah. remarkable. You know, it, uh, you know there, there is, I mean, you know, mathematical theory says you cannot come up with a new result without injecting a new variable into the equation, right? So, so this, this, is where, this is where I think drift happens and we don't even see it, is that we naturally conform to a shared identity and we never step back to ask the question, has anything changed? Uh, and, and how do we need to adapt uh, to that? But I, you know, the remarkable unwillingness of leaders to challenge a decision or an assertion. I mean, I got to tell you, there hasn't been anything that's gotten me in more trouble as an employee or an executive by saying, now, wait a minute, I just don't buy that. Uh, and, uh, and certainly, you know, most of the time it ends with, well, show me the evidence of something different, which is why I ended up learning Tableau. And, uh, and picking up data visualization because I was just hell bent on proving the fact that, you know, so there was at least something else that we weren't considering into the equation and, uh, and that. But, man, there, that is just not tolerated. Um, and, and it is looked at as disloyal. It's looked at as, um, you know, uh, un- uncooperative. And it's something that really looked at as almost disingenuous when, in fact, if I'm looking around the table and my whole team is nodding their head every single time I say something, I know I'm not that smart. I know I'm not that, uh, that good. And I know I'm not that, you know, in- insightful. Uh, but if everybody's nodding their head, yes, I got a real problem like that for yeah. me. That means everyone else has checked out. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things I remember a marriage therapist told me, and uh, you know, and I, I, I know you've you've done some of that in, in your past, is that you know it's all good as long as you're fighting. Yep. But when when you stop fighting, that's when you know it's bad. So so this help me reframe this idea of conflict because how can conflict help us create culture? Yeah, this is a, you know, and, and some some teams, some companies get this and, and those that don't, man, it's it's hard work. Um, but you want people that challenge you. And, you know, some of the basic questions I would encourage people to ask is, you know, right away within the next 30 minutes hour, uh, go ask someone from your leadership team. How do you experience me as a leader? And the second question very simply is, what do I do that makes your job hard? And, you know, typically you might not get the truth round one. And so go back maybe a couple days later, maybe email, then follow up with a key stakeholder, you know, someone that is is critical to your performance as a leader. And typically by the second or third time, you know, we'll, we'll have executives or managers come back and say, you know, they didn't say much, you know, and they'll have like, you know, a few bullet points. And I, and I, I challenge them, go back again. And they're like, wow, the floodgates opened. And it's like, yeah, you want those floodgates. Now, if you are more consistent and asking for feedback, and if you build systems of feedback loops, which are critical for performance and innovation, um, you want the truth. And I, I, I find that the great leaders want the truth, and they just don't know how to build structures. And before structures, how to invite others to speak the truth and to challenge the process and to divorce it from ego. Um, and there's a lot of factors at play, but it's it's tough work um, in some companies and some teams to have the crucial conversations we need to have. I mean, literally, I was in a, a meeting this week and a, a crucial, crucial conversation between two founders emerged. And it was it was beautiful. 
But we had to keep on probing and priming and say, hey, just say it, just get it out. And sometimes the the strategy that we uh, invoke is we'll just we'll give them a Google Doc and we'll say, okay, let's just get our issues out in the Google Doc. And there's a lot of strategies because sometimes people have a difficult time verbally saying it, but if they have the opportunity to, to write out their thoughts and they realize that there's psychological safety, <laughs> that they can say what needs to be said, and they're shocked that their boss or manager is like, wow, that I didn't know that. Or man, we're on the same page. And we were both afraid to say what needed to be said, or we're both founders in the company. Why, why haven't we been having this conversation? Um, but, but subtle things can emerge to block that and be barriers. That's so good. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking, thinking of the, the idea of feedback loops, man. Uh, you know, the, I, I think everyone's okay with those feedback loops, Daniel, as long as the feedback is consistent with what I believe to be true. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, seriously, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's what we want. We want confirmation. I mean, isn't that right? I mean, it's, it's, all, it's a, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the truth is, you know, uh, I mean, we've done a massive amount of work on feedback loops and, um, you know, our brains shut down. I mean, just biologically, we don't like critical feedback. And so feedback's got to be cr- critical, but the best feedback, uh, HBR Harvard had a great uh, article on this, or I think it was a whole issue a couple of years ago, why feedback fails. And some of this is our psychology and biology. It's just, we don't like being challenged. You know, our, our brains shut down. It's got to be critical. It's got to be constructive. It's got to, and by constructive, the best feedback is forward, forward focused. And so focus on the future. Yes, you got to break down processes. You got to break down people, but it's got to be continuous. And it's got to be ongoing, you know, catalytic, if you will. Like it can't be episodic. It's got to be built into the environment of your business. And the challenge with feedback, especially in this time of COVID and political polarization and social unrest is we we don't have much emotional resilience and we're in defense mode. And so it takes hard work to be in that discovery posture and to be in that openness posture as workers and as managers and as leaders, but that that's the chief work. And we all recognize that technical performance is hard, but that's the adaptive part. That's the inner game work. That's the how you're showing up at work. And are you showing up ready to receive critical feedback? And, and have you cultivated relationships where, yes, it's critical, but we're more focused on the future than um, – bringing this backlog of complaints. And this is the problem with annual performance reviews. Uh, we, we say don't do annual performance review if they're not tied to a continuous feedback loop. Because we talk about dehumanizing. What's more dehumanizing than bringing out a backlog of your performance looking over the past 12 years and your manager or your boss didn't have the strength to have the conversation three weeks ago, much less nine months ago. Uh, and and build those continuous feedback loops. Man, I actually had a CEO who was also an attorney tell me one time that, uh, you know, she decided not to do uh, performance reviews inside their organization. This is a large organization because she said everything's discoverable, and and so if we do performance reviews. Uh, it actually all becomes something that uh, can be discoverable if anything ever becomes an employee issue. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, like how broken is that mentality (laughs) that we don't even want to have the conversation because in case you sue us one day, we don't want to have any evidence that we might have to uh, explain uh, in inside a, you know, a courtroom. I mean, but that's, that's exactly where we are. I mean, functionally, if you're only talking to your, your team once, once a year for 10 minutes, right? I mean, we all have been those annual performance reviews. So how do you think you did? I don't know. Pretty good. How do you think I did? I think you're pretty good. All right. Two and a half percent raise. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just completely unnecessary. So I want to offer something insanely practical here that I think uh, I completely stole it from somebody else. So I'm, you know, definitely. It's all stolen, Ben. It's all stolen. But I, but I, you know, I, I did, you know, add a little, uh, add a little Ben Strout, you know, action to it or BS to it, however, however you want, however you want to look at it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, one of the things that I do with teams is I have them create a 90 day plan. And it's, it's a, it's a very collaborative process where the leader says, here are the outcomes that we need to achieve as a team in the next 90 days. And then each individual contributor is responsible for creating or for, for managing through a, a derivative process that looks like this. So they define what are their parts in achieving that 90, those 90 day outcomes. And then they turn them into monthly milestones, weekly commitments and daily initiatives. So we, and then what that actually does is it gets them to actually participate in here are the things that I think is going to be necessary in order for us to be able to achieve that. As a leader, I get to stack all those together in a written format that actually shows me when I link them all together, does it add up to where I want to go, which creates, I mean, as you like to say, and I'm totally stealing this phrase too, same page conversation. You actually are looking at it. And so then your weekly stand-up meetings are all about what's happened in the next five to seven, last five to seven days. Are you up, down, or sideways? Because if I can make an intervention five to seven days in, I've got a heck of a better chance of, of meeting my monthly milestones and then my quarterly outcomes. And then you can even do mid-quarter uh, progress reports. So I would have each team member go through six weeks in and say, based on where you thought you would be six weeks ago, how close are you to that or how far away and how likely or at risk are you of not achieving your, your quarterly outcomes or exceeding your quarterly outcomes, right? So there's this constant process. And, and guess what? You, we get to do it four times uh, you know, with inside a fiscal year, which in completely increased uh, our capacity to actually deliver on those outcomes. So if you can get your team to, to you as a leader, take your, your 12-month goals, break them down into quarters, and then take those quarters and have your team go through that process, you will have, uh, you will have what you need uh, going into each quarter in order to do that. Now, the trick is, is that you are at the very particularly month three of one plan and, and kind of month zero of the next plan or kind of there's a little bit of overlap, but you should come into every 90 day period with everyone being on the same page with what are they going to do every day, every week, every month, every quarter. And all of those things should add up to your quarterly uh, outcomes. And that creates a feedback mechanism that's not about, I like your shirt, or I really like you know what you had to say today. It's more of, this is how we are working together. And it keeps it about the outcome, not about the activity or about the, the side conversations. And, I, and as you've said before, if you can demonstrate action, um, people will move toward that. 
And I think sometimes the reasons why organizations really experience drift and disengagement is because they're not focusing their energy of culture around action. They're focusing it around being. And, and that's a really hard thing to do without the action um, yeah. that's part of it. But when your team knows how, how they will make a meaningful com- uh, contribution and how they will be recognized, celebrated, and rewarded, they, that will absolutely motivate them. And people want to be held accountable. I mean, people want to be yes. held accountable. And great leaders hold others accountable. And more than just great leaders – great organizations have a culture of accountability. And so, yes, we need to tie it to clear objectives and measures and have those conversations. But the best accountability is built into the team and it smokes out the complexity. It, it smokes out the slack and, and it, and people love that they rise to it. They're attracted to it when they don't know where they stand. It raises levels of anxiety when they know where they stand, it increases performance and you, you drive out the low performers, those that, that aren't about it, which there are people who want to just exist. Um, that's not the majority. We, we see very few people like that in organizations. It, they do exist. But holding people accountable, having the conversations, decreasing the duration between those conversations is absolutely critical. Uh, absolutely. So to, I really think what, what's important, we want everybody to take away from this episode is that, you know, as, as we said, culture is a byproduct of your people strategy and you create your culture one team at a time. And without a unified, engaged and motivated team, you will not survive. Your biggest threat to whatever it is that you're responsible for delivering on, whatever you are accountable for, to whomever you are accountable to, is disengagement and drift. And if you can get everyone rowing in the same direction, focused on the same outcomes, driving toward those success measures, and you can do that together with open feedback loops, you will absolutely create a culture that will become a centrifuge. It will draw people to you. And now it will be, what is, how big can we dream? Yep. Not just what do we have to do to survive? And when that happens, that's when culture becomes an accelerant toward your ultimate success and will propel you well beyond whatever your present challenges are and your persistent realities that you think are holding you back. So if you want to really experience growth in this season of uncertainty, Go deep with your people. Go real practical with your team. And that's what will create the culture that will sustain you. And it will unleash the genius of the people. And that's what that's what a people strategy is really all about. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Dave? You know, I just love the bias towards action. And, and we're seeing this every day. We're, we're seeing companies turn around, um, leaders holding their teams accountable by first holding themselves accountable. And, um, and they become, as you said, centrifuges, magnets for talent. Um, word gets out and they are able to attract the best talent because they clarify their commitment. Uh, there's vision, alignment, execution, and there's radical accountability. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. It's been another great episode. Thank you, listener, uh, for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Velocity Factor podcast. When you achieve speed and direction in your leadership and organization, 
Velocity will carry you farther than you ever imagined and faster than you ever thought possible. Now that strategy delivered at the speed of change. Be sure to subscribe to email updates at thevelocityfactor.com.